0: This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Six o'clock hour. Thanks for being with us. February 15th. Good morning. Hope everyone had a uh, pleasant Valentine's Day evening. Um, I made dinner. I did dishes. I did this. But yes, that you go to the grocery store. You see all these guys walking around buying flowers. The thing was like a flower shop. You're like, where's the food? Complete aisles. The whole fresh center aisle is taken over by uh, guys in, in green aprons at Sobeys watering flowers. So all these men walking around. I'm like, what did you do? And then you remember it's February 15th. And then you're like, well, join the club. Of a, a spontaneous yellow rose purchase. $22 later. You tell me. You, you're, you tell me how I'm making that back in the next day or two. Then I got to pay for lunch today with Anthony Fury. Are you kidding? Uh, Anyway, uh, I hope everyone had a great Valentine's Day night. Let me start here. I'm going to get to what transpired in Kansas City and link it with our own celebration and how that was marred in 2019. I will mention as well, weather and snow, something to keep an eye on later on today. Between 11 o'clock and noon, we're going to start to see some snowflakes. These white things fall from the sky and they accumulate and they make driving slippery and the sidewalks slippery as well. You haven't seen it much this month. I got it. But that's coming in uh, in the next few hours, and then it should make for a quite messy afternoon commute. Uh, so the budget is in for the city of Toronto, a much-debated budget at that. Olivia Chow's first budget at that. And it's $17 billion. And people have made the notation. Um, and I, I think there's some wiggle room here to understand this. What a big tax hike this was. So much so that the 9.5 property tax hike... Eight counselors couldn't vote for it. And we're gonna have one of those counselors who voted for it, Gord Perks, one of those counselors that voted against it, Brad Bradford, both on think tank. We're gonna keep this very uh hyper local with some some step out to some other issues as well when we do our uninterrupted panel segment at seven thirty. But last night it's done and dusted and the budget has been finalized. To put it this way, if you have a property tax bill of five grand two years ago, it's almost a thousand dollars more five thousand eight hundred fifty dollars three things that olivia chow mentioned when she campaigned she wanted toronto to be, and we've played that commercial more than enough times she made a 30 second radio ad while she was leading the race with a lot of attention starting to be gained by other candidates and a bylaws campaign had momentum people were looking at mark saunders who had the premier doug ford's endorsement anthony fury i just mentioned you'll hear him coming up at nine o'clock the former toronto sun columnist was starting to really get momentum. And as I've always said about that campaign, if you told me Anthony Fury would finish with more votes than a well-known counselor like Josh Matlow or a very you know media-centric, savvy candidate like Brad Bradford uh, or some other big names, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, and about two weeks in, I'm like, oh, this is very possible. And then about five weeks in, you're like, this is definitely possible. Seven weeks in, it's going to happen. But a lot of the criticism about Chow was she made a radio ad that said Toronto's just not affordable anymore. Well, let's let that hang in the balance there for just a second and ask, is it more affordable now? Is a tax bill increase of $850 a year if you already paid five grand, is that more affordable for you? Where do you get the 850 uh, back? Not many places. So she wants to make the city affordable, safe and caring. And I've made this case before. Big cities aren't affordable to everyone. You know that at various times in your life, you might have friends that want to move into Toronto and they just can't crack it. And of course, they can't crack it now in 2024, but they couldn't crack it in 1994 either. I remember having to make a really tough decision not to stretch my family's finances in 1994 when I wanted to go to grad school. And I applied to what was then Ryerson. And I didn't get in my first year. I needed a bit more experience. Uh, I think my marks were okay, but I really hadn't done much in terms of uh, radio broadcasting. I hadn't written for the school newspaper. So I did both those things over the next year. Tighten it up. I I took a couple extra politics courses, but didn't didn't change my average very much. I I was a decent, very high B-plus student. I was not an A student trying to get into Ryerson, but I was a high B-plus student. And like 78 and a half average, something like that. I get into Ryerson, but I also get into Fanshawe College for broadcast journalism. And that's almost exclusively broadcast instead of broadcast in print. But I remember thinking at the time, and this is now, my gosh, 30 years ago, it's going to be way more affordable to stay in London. Now, I had a job there. I knew people. I knew my way around. Uh, Obviously, I, I could get a cheaper apartment, come back to my parents, do the laundry there, that kind of thing. Toronto intimidated me a little bit, but some of what intimidated me was the cost. And there have to be people now, 30 years later, thinking the same thing for their college-age kids. I've got a kid going to college or university potentially this fall, and it's on my mind much more consistently, I would bet, than it was my parents 30 years ago. And then there's just people practically that grew up here that can't afford to stay. And maybe it's not just affordability. Remember what we said, affordable, caring, and safe. Is it any of those things more than in the last five years? Give Olivia Chow credit; she's being true to her word and her campaign in terms of trying to paint it that way. But is it? In fact, Global News's Matthew Bingley on the television side for us asked Olivia Chow about the affordability factor yesterday, and here's what she said:
1: A lot, a lot of councilors are saying. Well, a few councilors are saying a that few. the city gotten more unaffordable everybody together is that something that weighed on your mind today
2: no 80 cents extra a day Um, folks can afford it those that cannot will have a tax cancellation and tax deferral program to assist them and at least half of the people that are tenants are not facing an increase because of it
0: okay two things on that statement renters aren't going to face an increase want to bet they absolutely will Their landlords will raise their rent. Why? The mortgages are going up. Okay? The property tax is going up. Interest rates aren't dropping potentially until the fall. Of course renters are going to pay more. Nobody believes that statement. The second thing, when she talks about deferred tax credits for people who can't afford it, who are they? What's their threshold? If anything, the messaging for Olivia Chow has fallen a little bit short in that factor. And then there's the police. You know how debated this was for ages on end, about the cops. Well, the cops ended up getting what they wanted. They lobbied pretty hard for it. Is that something the cops should be doing? Should they be hiring lobbyists out of your tax dollars that they get to put their own campaign together? Maybe an argument for another day. Maybe an argument for later in the show. But they got what they wanted. Some counselors ended up voting against it. Five, as a matter of fact, voted against the police getting this budget. But Olivia Chow was one of the 21 that voted for it. Here she is explaining that somehow she found federal and provincial money that, it's weird, the federal government hasn't announced it, and the provincial government hasn't announced it either. But that's why she can afford to give the cops not 90% of what they want, the whole kit and caboodle, if you will.
2: I found extra dollars. In the last week uh, and a half, and those conversation has been ongoing, and I'm very thankful for the federal and the provincial government of, to step up to say that hey, uh, Toronto has unique policing cost, and they're willing to share uh, some, you know, the burden of paying uh, to supporting the police. So I'm grateful for that. And what I don't want to see is cutting other services.
0: Okay, so no services ended up getting cut. But again, it's very strange that the federal government or provincial government wasn't part of a joint announcement in the last 48 hours. And I talked to one federal MP last night, and that person knows nothing about this. Doesn't know about the amount. Doesn't know that didn't even know that Olivia Chow is saying, oh, we found some federal and provincial money. Well, maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. Either way, the cops ended up getting what they wanted. The question is, again, is Toronto meant to be affordable for everybody? Is it meant to be safe for everybody? We'll see what the cops can do. And there's an onus on the police. I was critical of the police Monday night with what they didn't do and how they didn't respond to at least what was an altercation and fracas outside of Mount Sinai Hospital. We can have different opinions of what it was and what the motivation was. What we can't argue about is it probably needed more of a police presence than two officers that were there. Either way, it's one of those situations where they said there's a 22-minute wait time when police get uh, get a 911 call. We need the money to make sure that goes down. There is a massive pressure on Myron DemQ uh, and the Toronto police now to make sure that number doesn't go up. Because nobody should support more money for them if indeed that number doesn't drop within the next 12 months. Let me shift really quick to Kansas City. And if you missed it over the last 24 hours or so, Just a terrible scene, and we hope that we don't get worse news about the potential for more deaths. But one person passed away, a mother of two, no less, and 21 others wounded by gunfire in a mass shooting at the end of the Chiefs Super Bowl parade yesterday. People are there to celebrate. They're there to exhale. They're there to honor the players that they paid to see and that they sit around Sundays and watch. In the, on the most popular sport on, the, on television for the most popular sport in North America. And the Chiefs are beloved in Kansas City. By a mile, they're the most popular team in that city of all the pro sports teams. They only have the two. The Royals in baseball, the Chiefs in football. And yesterday, a rather disastrous scenario in terms of a shooting. We'll talk a ton more about it this morning, but here's Chief Ross Grundison from the Kansas City Fire Department on the victims that he found. Our uh, KCFD units along with our mutual aid partners that were working to assist us at this event touched a total of 22 gunshot victims one of those was a fatality Um, we had eight what we considered immediately life-threatening patients we had seven with uh, life-threatening injuries and we had six that were had minor injuries of the most serious the immediately life-threatening injuries. We had eight of those. Those were all transported and off the scene and route to hospitals within 10 minutes. Um, So we felt the response was certainly adequate and appropriate and I commend all our staff working there today along with PD that did an excellent job under difficult circumstances. Um, We transported three different hospitals. We transported Children's Mercy, um, Truman Medical, and also St. Luke's on the Plaza. And it's easy to say, well, it's a relief that there weren't more fatalities. It's a relief there weren't more people killed. Well, we're hoping that's still true 24 hours from now. And it's not a relief if you had a nine-year-old at that party and they've been at that parade and they've been shot or a 12-year-old. The trauma could be lifelong. And I think that's something we have to talk more about is the after effects of surviving a mass shooting as opposed to just losing your life in it a lot in the United States to unpack on these things which keep happening over and over again. This is Toronto today with Greg Brady.
3: Toronto's News, Today's Talk.
0: 6:40 Toronto. I saw a new poll that said 2 in 3 people in romantic relationships celebrated Valentine's Day. Although how romantic could it be if you're answering a poll on Valentine's Day? <laughs> Almost there, honey. Got got to answer a few more questions. But yeah. Yeah, twice a year, once on my birthday, uh, and yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Fallon from The Tonight Show last night. Uh, Yesterday was indeed Valentine's Day. You would think as well a lucrative holiday uh, to be a cab driver or be an Uber driver. And in our city yesterday, there was – but I don't know that you knew about it. Um, I don't want to call it nothing because we talked about it in the advance leading up and going, oh, my goodness, Uber and Lyft. It might be tough to get a food delivery. It might be hard to get a ride anywhere. And I didn't necessarily need a ride anywhere. And I drove home and it felt like a normal drive around 11 in the morning. Maybe it wasn't uh, by the time of the evening. So you're more than welcome to text in the show and let us know, did you have a tougher time uh, getting a ride last night? Did you have a tougher time going from point A to B, 416-870-6400 via text? We're always open uh, for your uh, text exchanges and your thoughts, not just on the show, but on the topic we're doing at a given time. Valentine's Day, according to the rideshareguy.com, one of my favorite websites, found it yesterday, is a third uh, behind, in the States anyway, behind New Year's Day and Super Bowl Sunday. If you're wondering where New Year's Eve is, it's 10th. Are people just so hammered up they don't remember they got in an Uber on December 31st? Maybe it's that. Halloween and Thanksgiving are listed as more busy Uber days than New Year's Eve. Uh, but it's New Year's Day, Super Bowl Sunday, and Valentine's Day. So this should have been a really busy day for Uber and Lyft drivers in the city, so much so. That our uh, our noon host, uh, Ben Mulrooney, who was in for Kelly Cotrera yesterday, decided to do a little of, of an experiment. Now, Shiba Siddiqui our producer. You and I, were you were out last night and I wasn't really. My kid took the car, took his girlfriend out. But did you go out or you just had oh, errands no. and kids I had, sports yeah. and no, jumping no, 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 from no, no. place to place?
3: I was driving kids to taekwondo. Pra- and How romantic. Uh, and, yeah, and and hockey practice. No, that was my That's- night. <laughs> but we, did, we went for a little walk in the afternoon. My husband and I, he gave me a little present. It was present, lovely, little- sunny. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was it, we had a cup of tea together at a local coffee shop. That Aww. was our, that was, that's, that, that was a perfect Valentine's day for me.
0: So you didn't, okay, great. So you didn't need a ride and, and you probably drove home eh, close to the same time I did. We didn't notice the highway. Sometimes there've been truck protests on the DVP and there they're have. all jammed up and you're like, where am I? I can't get anywhere. No, it's fine. Um. So Ben, I listened to the start of Ben's show at noon and he said um, he, he did a couple experiments with, with Uber. And one of them was to order a McGriddle sandwich. I mean, again, I'm not telling tales out of school. These are this is on the public uh, record. And he said, I ordered a McGriddle sandwich. I'm like, just the one McGriddle. And um, and then at five, 10 minutes later, he said, I'm I'm feeling a little stuffed up again. He's telling his truth. And uh, and and he and he made this second order here. This is from Ben's show yesterday at uh, 12 noon. I heard it in the car live and I I'm like, wow, here it is. I've lost
3: 50, 16 pounds since New Year's Day. And I decided to celebrate by having a McGriddle for breakfast. Yes. And it was perfect. And it showed up here in about seven minutes. So that was good. And then I I also found myself a little congested today. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. A little bit congested. So I tested it again. Got Uber. And they brought me a decongestant. And that showed up in about 15 minutes too.
0: All right. Now... I have heard of, uh, we've all ordered food. Um, maybe, I, I, I'll, I'll call myself out here, I've ordered coffee here. When I've forgotten coffee, or it's too late to come in, or <laughs> all these stores oh, are closed, all of a sudden a couple McDonald's, like giant McCafe coffees to get me through this madness has okay. showed up at the front
3: desk. For good reason, you're the morning show guy. Uh, sure, And
0: but can you imagine... Like, how do you get a decongestant delivered here from an Uber driver? How I'm would one do it? I'm wondering the same
3: thing. He must, he or she must have to go into a pharmacy. What? He, he, I don't. But he how do you make
0: that request?
3: No, I'm sure it's already purchased. You, you must go online, purchase it from somewhere for pickup, and then the Uber driver goes in, picks it up, and brings it over to you. Although I have never heard of this either.
0: <laughs> like shop? Does Shoppers Drug Mart? I, I, I'm trying to figure out the process. Do you call shoppers and go, an Uber driver will pick this up, or do you tell the Uber driver you order an Uber and then you put in the notes? There's a little extra in it for you if you if you pick up some Driztan in aisle six at the shoppers. That's like just there's down a little the street. Extra
3: what? I don't know. A tip. Well, you we have to tip anyway. Most of us tip what? our Uber drivers. I know, Brady. But, but
0: I'm talking an extra extra to order an antihistamine.
3: You should ask Ben that question. And
0: do the Uber drivers talk amongst themselves? You know, like, I know they don't have, like, CB radio scores. Of course
3: they gossip. But do
0: they're like, Sully? You're not gonna believe what Ben just Soul ordered from.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm looking at the hey. Uber Eats app right now, and it's got on the across the
1: top: grocery, convenience, alcohol, pharmacy.
0: There you go. You can do the pharmacy on Uber yes. every... Eats. Okay, which I'm is learning fantastic. Something.
3: If you're a mom at home alone with your kids, one of them's really sick, you can't leave. Or them. an
0: able-bodied, uh, uh, you know, uh, son of a prime minister, right. you can oh, do that. Oh my god! Why well, did it just makes sense? <laughs> he could. He was a little woozy, maybe, and couldn't walk to the. To the grocery store that's just down the street. I got it. He's prepping. I like that. Ben, this is a one-sided about conversation.
3: Okay, let the record I'm show. I'm defending
0: his right to do this. I just was asked. Right. <laughs> Did he enjoy the antihistamine as much as the McGriddle is a really fair question. And he had the McGriddle first, so he has a full stomach ready for it. <laughs> also, to think about. Um, you notice this story about WestJet, and I do want to get to it in the last uh, minute and a half that we have here. BC woman says WestJet kicked her off the plane for using bathroom too much.
3: Okay, so when I first saw this, I thought, "Oh, what was she doing in the bathroom?" You know, she's she was coming back from uh, Mexico, and I thought, "Okay, you know, you never know what's going. It's a good reason. Maybe they discovered she was doing something in the bathroom. They wanted her off the plane. No, she had an upset stomach." From things that she ate in Mexico, she had gotten sick. So before takeoff, she had to keep running to the bathroom, uh, as one does when they're sick. And they didn't like it. She had been on medication. She was on the mend. And they asked her politely to uh, de- disembark off the plane. That's she, unbelievable. Yep. To kick her off the flight. Because she's got she's the monopolizing
0: runs. the one spot that maybe, how many people are on a plane? 150? 180? I guess so. So it's one bathroom Mexico, for 180 yeah. people.
3: Yeah. No, it's not uh, one bathroom. It's multiple. Two?
0: There's no, no more than two There's two probably four. Oh, you fly on nicer planes than I do. No,
3: I don't. This is yeah, WestJet. We're talking about WestJet. here. don't years. have
0: four planes on a wet. Don't it have four spots on I a I think West two jet at, jet at the plane? back
3: and two at the front. Uh, that's what I would imagine. I only ever see okay, one. of Okay, minimum back. of two. There's a minimum of two. Anyway, she. Is our first class? What's in first so, class? A shower. Brady, what? This here's what I've learned. Don't get the runs on an airplane on a WestJet airplane because you're off well, that flight. I just I think that's ridiculous. They wouldn't rebook her. They wouldn't uh, give her a credit. None of that. So now she's had to fight for it. They wouldn't put her up in a hotel. Apparently, in the rush of it. She, here's what I don't get.
0: She's an author. She follows me on on the X platform. No, she doesn't. She does too. She has 51,000 followers. <laughs> Joanna Chu. She's written about China.
3: What does that mean? She's
0: a, what is that? She what? wrote China <laughs> Unbound. This book. I know the book. We got, <laughs> she got home safe and sound after some stomach tr- uh, troubles. Listen, there was, I went to Mexico in 1996 uh, and there were, there was probably a, Day and a half in which I had to clear some stomach issues, I wouldn't have wanted to fly for a million-dollar check at that point. I had some kind of parasite or bug in my stomach. Maybe I drank the water. They tell you not to do that. Oh, I'm sure that's
3: probably what it was. It happens. It happens to everybody. (sighs) I haven't used a bathroom... Uh sorry, an airplane bathroom. I'm not I kidding. I don't believe you. I promise <laughs> I don't you. I know how. You, you never know, have to go. You know how much I travel. I, I, it's been two decades at least since I've used an airplane bathroom. And I've gone overseas. I've gone to Europe. <laughs> I just don't drink anything and I hold it if I have to.
0: Okay. All right, so Joanna
3: and knowing WestJet now, I mean listen, they're going to just kick me off for using the bathroom. Anyway. I'm
0: not going to deny Ben Mulrooney needed uh, oh pharmacy help. God. Joanna Chu made, may have needed pharmacy. She <laughs> may have needed to make that Uber pharmacy order prior to the flight. Just some probiotics, Sheba. That's it. This is Toronto today with Greg Brady,
3: Toronto's news, today's talk,
0: six forty Toronto. A lot of people are noticing, and I have a, a an entry point for this story. A lot of people are noticing their smaller towns or suburbs. Changing to some extent. I see the same person uh, all the time. A w- white dude, orange dreadlocks. He's all over the place. He's, I, I, he's instantly recognizable um, in the city. And I will tell you, across from a Tim Hortons, he set up a giant tent. He either was given a giant tent or bought a giant tent. But he's in a grassy patch across from the tent. I saw him set it up when I, I drive by to get to the 401 to come here every day. And I saw him set it up. Around 11 a.m. to 1130 yesterday when I got home and I drive by at 415 this morning, that tent is there. So he's out there sleeping outside. It's no good. And um, and beyond that, there's obviously some issues in some towns. Belleville was well documented last week. The cops saying don't come to the downtown core. A, we're busy uh, because we're dealing with a lot of open drug use and B, it isn't safe, probably for the very, very same reason. So it's a real struggle for all of us uh, to look inward at ourselves, but outward at the towns that we think are changing in front of our own eyes. The mayor of St. Catharines weighed in on this early this week based on a Colby Kosh uh, National Post uh, column about things that were happening in British Columbia. And I'm happy the mayor of St. Catharines is joining me right now. He is Matt Sisko. Matt, thank you for the time today. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to come on and chat about this. I,
0: well, I, I say that, and and you you're kind of St. Catharines for life. You're on city council forever. You know probably every nook and cranny, and and people know you. And it's tough, right? Because nobody wants to sound like they you know make St. Catharines great again. We all know how that can get perceived, but we are seeing our our towns and our suburbs changing in front of our own eyes, and and yours is no different.
1: Yeah, and you know what? When I came into office last year, or year and a half ago now, as the mayor you know i one of the first things I did was I tried to be completely straight with the community and with specifically our regional council about listen, there are a lot of problems and they're being it wasn't as they were being ignored they just weren't being dealt with the way they needed to be and so we've seen increases in the homelessness in our downtown we've seen the tents popping up in our parks, you know and there's a lot of what I've been told to describe as street involved behavior which makes people uncomfortable it makes them scared in some cases to come into the downtown and you know so we've been pushing our regional government, push, pushing the provincial government as well, because the reality is all four levels in St. Catharines we got four levels of government. All four of them are failing residents, and it, it's not good enough to just sit around and talk about it anymore. I really hoped with what was going on in Belleville that that might spur some action, but I'm afraid now it's just going to fall off the front page again, and We'll be back to where we were.
0: Who do we need to hear from on, on these fronts? Is, is this a combination of, of kind of the premier and the prime minister? Is it more one than the other? Um, whose jurisdiction? You know, obviously, housing is a federal jurisdiction, but a lot of the mental health and health care is provincial.
1: Well, and that's it. And that's why I say we need everybody at the table. You know, if you look, municipalities across the province, I'm a part of the big city mayors. and We've been calling for this for a year and a half since I came into office. We need the federal and provincial government to sit down at the table. We need better access to healthcare, we need better access to drug rehabilitation programs. We need additional funding to build the supportive and transition housing and the shelter space in the short term because unfortunately that's where we're at. You know, we need help from those levels of government because if the municipalities tried to put it on the property tax base, like we would we would wind up creating more homeless people. Like we would we would be having to raise our property taxes so high, people would lose their homes. So, those levels of government that have access to it, they need to be a part of this and like I said, it seems like for the last year and a half, it's just a lot of people sitting around, you know, talking about the problem, but nobody actually saying, okay, here's the dollars to allocate mental health resources in the community. You know, I got into a bit of an argument last year uh, with the provincial level of government, saying, you know, we need we need more housing to be able to get these people along with the care, and we were told, wow, they need drug rehabilitation. Well, on any given day, if I walk into the safe injection site in my community, they'll tell you there's no spots. Like they have people say, listen, I'm ready, I want to. I want to get help. I want to get off drugs and they have nowhere to send them. So, you know, we need those supports or else nothing's going to get better.
0: And I'll buy that. I think I think I'm so glad you brought that up because there's a lot of discussion about you can imagine here in Toronto. Right. A a woman was shot in Leslieville in the summer and it got a lot of publicity uh, near a safe injection site, but safe injection sites. Are, are only meant to be one pillar of the four pillars of getting things better. We need police to enforce crimes. We need intervention to help people get off drugs. And right now, like we're, we're utilizing harm reduction, aren't we? But prevention, treatment, enforcement, we're, we're falling really short on that, Matt.
1: Oh, we definitely are. And you touched on two things there. I will say, first of all, I've actually, you know, backed off on the police a little bit because I've realized, the predicament they're in, the justice system is not dealing with any of this. You know, so I've I've yeah. I, I mentioned this online. You know, I had a conversation with a Crown prosecutor last year and he just laid into me about you need to deal with the, the issues downtown and all this. And before I could even get a word out, he said, and listen, I know we're not making things any easier for you because, you know, we're not prosecuting these things. Well, yeah, like I think you identified one of the big problems when it comes to, you know, the, the safe injection sites. You're 100 percent right. This is supposed to be the first step on trying to get people help it's not the final solution uh, to the problem. And so we need we need those drug rehab spots or else there's nothing that can be done.
0: What what, if I call the mayor's office, if I call you and I'm a resident of St. Catharines and I lay out that story, I laid out with what's in Ajax right now. And I say, hey, listen, there's a tent where my uh, uh, with a guy in it and my 18 year old works at Tim Hortons and I don't want the tent there. What would be the next step or would there be a step?
1: Well, we would send out, we have, uh, we help fund a street outreach team that goes out, tries to identify housing for people. But last year in the province of Ontario, the, the Waterloo case, as it's come to be known, has yeah. ruled that unless you have a bed, which is works for that person, right? So uh, they may have a partner. So then now you need to have a room with a bed for both of them, or maybe they have a pet. Unless you have that space, you're not allowed to tear down that encampment. And that's the struggle that I run into every day. You know, the, I just described the last two hours of my day yesterday sitting with senior leadership at the city and saying, you know, we have this new encampment, which is popping up. Is there anything we can do here? And but, you know, we're we're hamstrung a little bit as well because we're in a two level government with the regional government. So we don't even have access to all the social services. You know, it's it's going to another layer of bureaucracy. It's. A perfect storm of problems, which are all coming to a head right now, and it's going to require everybody sitting at the table not talking, just figuring out what can we do to do it.
0: And listening to each other, because we hear those words all the time. I I hear the word dignity, Matt, and I think – well, who's defining dignity? Is dignity not stigmatizing somebody's problems or is dignity lifting them up and helping them? Like like d- dignity is, is working. Dignity is having your own space. Dignity is managing your own life. If that was your kid, my kid out there in that tent I drive by this morning, I'd do anything. I'd dive into any resource I had possible to help him. And I, w- I wouldn't just leave him there. And we've got, we do, we have advocates that just say you got to leave them alone and let them live their lives. Well, I don't want them to die out there.
1: Well, but this is it. Like, dignity is not dying in the park in the middle of the winter because it's too cold or, you know, accidentally lighting yourself on fire because you're trying to get heat from a propane tank. You know, that's that's not dignity. Dignity is exactly what you just said, raising people up and helping them achieve a better life. I got into this argument about stigma with a, a local reverend a couple months back. She said, we need to destigmatize the drugs. I said, no, I'm, I'm never going to encourage my children to start using fentanyl. Like, there's a stigma for a reason. These things are dangerous and they're going to kill people. If the a stigma... We have to stop acting like the stigma around drugs is a bad thing. We don't want people to use drugs. Specifically, these hard drugs. I, I, I just—it's it, a bit mind-boggling when you get into these debates with some of the advocacy community because they just don't seem to understand.
0: And we guess what? We stigmatize not having friends, and we stigmatize playing video games in bedrooms for 12 hours, and we stigmatize overeating and drinking too, gambling. We stigmatize everything else in our society because we we try and do the right things. We all fall off the page once in a while and need somebody to help us with stuff. So there you have it. Yeah, there you go. Um, I really appreciate having you on. I'll tell you, of a lot of mayors we've had on, um, you're one of the straightest shooters, so I appreciate this, and I hope you'll do it again with us. No, I'll be happy to. Thank you, Greg. You got it. Matt Sisko is the mayor of St. Catharines. He's had enough. Again, you can hear it in his voice, and the logic is right there as to what we need to do and what we can do, and they're in just a winless situation. Look at all the people. Hey, you got to fix this on one side, and hey, you got a lot of people on the other side saying, hey, leave them alone. Well, who 's right and who 's wrong? This is Toronto today with greg brady
3: toronto 's news today 's talk
0: six hundred forty Toronto We mentioned Olivia Chow, and the police budget was of some controversy over the last few days. She did do a one hundred and eighty on what was planned here 's how she explained some of that yesterday.
2: I found extra dollars in the last week. <laughs> Uh, and a half and those conversation has been ongoing and I'm very thankful for the federal and the provincial government to step up to say that hey uh, Toronto has unique policing costs and they're willing to share uh, some you know the burden of paying uh, to supporting the police so I'm grateful for that and what I don't want to see is cutting other services.
0: Okay, so she says the, the money came somewhere from another form of government. We don't know how much. And we don't know how the governments are split. Again, we could go deeper into the details on that and, and find the accuracy of all those statements. Either way, a lot of people have opinions about it. We've had David uh, Shelnut, uh, the biking lawyer, on before. He has represented many victims, uh, alleged and then convicted of uh, p- police, convicted of police violence. And he joins us now on Toronto Today. David, it's great to have you back on, and I appreciate it.
4: Greg, happy to speak with you.
0: Um, You called this gutting. You were a Mayor Chow supporter. You voted for, and as you say, um, you represent many people who have experienced police violence. How disappointing was this turnaround to you? Uh,
4: Surprising, but uh, uh, not surprising, but as I said, gutting. Uh, The police exert an incredible amount of pressure on politicians from the top brass to their police unions acting in concert I get these are scary guys and and they wield a lot of power, uh, but still, you know, if if a uh, if a progressive mayor like uh, and strong person like Mayor Chow uh, can't stand up to these guys, then then it's it's a it's a real sad moment. I think.
0: Well, I, I would ask about Chow though. Can't or or wouldn't? Why not stand your ground and say this is this is all we have here? Now, my understanding was an amendment would have been put on the floor and there were fourteen councilors with the majority, but strong bear powers do exist, and she could have held them off. There was a way to do this, and to me, she chose not to.
4: Yeah, that's that's the way sort of we're feeling on the ground, too. Uh, you know, I, I spoke at, budget, at the police budget uh, about Devon Fallon, who was shot by a police officer who was then charged, uh, the officer then charged, and then I spoke again at the budget committee um, about the cost, like, not only uh, of the huge police budget, but each of these incidents... Uh, cost money to the taxpayer, hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees uh, and, and and compensation paid out to to victims of police violence, and and no one's asking where that's coming from. There, there's money pouring into Toronto police services, uh, and and I think you know it behooves us to to really take a look at this.
0: So people may be listening to you for the first time, and they say, "Well, here's a guy." That doesn't like the police, but my understanding is, and you've had, I've had enough conversations about it. A lot of this, and a lot of your perspectives about oversight, and it isn't about the rank and file men and women. This is about a system, and and I buy the notion that police probably shouldn't investigate themselves in these particular cases. It's a lot of good cops, and maybe we've got a rotten system with good cops in it.
4: I have personally been helped. I have been assaulted to near death, and Toronto Police Service did an impeccable job. Uh, with with helping me and my family, I've seen them uh, on occasion do a fantastic job investigating cycling cases. Uh, but the system, we know from the human rights commission uh, down to community complaints and the police's own apology, that they've got some serious issues with respect to use of force and race. Uh, and and mm-hmm. and and people are asking to sort of pull back on what police respond to, uh, get get mental health service providers out there. Uh, where appropriate and and bring down these incidents of violence uh, and, and that should bring down the budget as well.
0: David Sheldon is our guest on Toronto Today. Like, that's what I look for to. How do we find independent adjudicators that have no bias to begin with, and how can they preside over disciplinary cases? You and I, and I guess, I think a lot of our listeners too, no matter which way they lean left, right, center, they roll their eyes when they hear, and this is now a special investigations unit. This is all, we got to blanket uh, all the information about this. And I'm like, we don't do this for any other business and in any other circumstance.
4: Greg, I got... uh at at this time two separate incidents of a police dog uh, without command um, biting uh, members of the public Uh, and in both of those instances i've referred to police complaints and they've been referred back to the police department where the dog uh, is stationed and the and the handler and in both those incidents even though i'm listed as a lawyer the police call my client directly uh and 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 there's just no there's just it's it's a real problem uh in terms of count- accountability out there there's new legislation uh that's just passed but uh you know i am I'm, I'm not holding my breath that we're going to see any sort of oversight here
0: um has it changed your opinion of the mayor or is this just one you're you're frustrated by and and you'll you'll grin and bear it and and move on and and keep supporting her
4: well uh you know there was some comments earlier about uh Cyclists uh, in Hyde Park that that echoed Mayor Tory, uh, and there's been a lot of talk about protests and clamping down. Uh, so you know we're 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 definitely out of the
0: honeymoon period. David Shelnut's our guest. Hey, I appreciate our conversations, David. Thanks for the time. Greg, you have a great morning. Stay safe today. You bet I will. David Shelnut, uh, the biking lawyer, joining us. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady.
3: Toronto's news. Today's talk.
0: 640 Toronto. very pleased to welcome on our next guest. Uh, She was elected as the MPP for Hamilton Center in Queens Park back about a year ago uh, at this time. She left the NDP caucus last fall and now sits as an independent MPP. And we want to get to some of the issues uh, she's eager to talk about this morning, But this is her first chat in some time. And we welcome on Sarah Jama, independent MPP for Hamilton Center. It's nice to have you on our show, and I appreciate you doing this.
5: Hi, thanks for having
0: me. Well, absolutely. I want to get to a lot of what's coming at Queen's Park. You've got motions to be tabled, and I I think they're really important motions, and I want to amplify them. But you can imagine, a lot of people are... Are, they know your name and there's been a lot and you've been through a lot and uh, and some of it, I think, has been really fair criticism. Some of it has been really unfair to you. So you can imagine there's a lot of questions people want answered, right? Absolutely. So we go back to the fall and I want to know, you, you left the NDP caucus and you were kicked out of the NDP caucus. Is there anything that you would do over again? Do you chalk this up to misunderstanding? Do you chalk this up to how fired up all of us got after October 7th? There was a lot of emotion. What do you see, and what would you do differently, if anything?
5: That's a really good question. Um, before I get really into it, I know that I'm speaking to a Toronto audience. I don't do radio that much, but I also just I want to take a second to introduce myself. My name is Sarah Jamma. I'm an organizer from Hamilton, Ontario. To even run for the NDP to be an MPP, my friends and I signed up 600 numbers to take over the nomination process. So I want to be very clear that I come from a history of organizing in my community very deeply. I have a lot of trust in my community very deeply for what I stand for. You were talking about medical assistance and dying earlier. I was one of the leading voices against the expansion of track two, and I testified at Senate. I've been on the federal executive of the NDP. I've co-managed the successful campaign of Narendra Nan, the first woman of color to be elected in my city. I've been around for some time in political spaces, and I was also a sessional instructor at McMaster University where I developed a course on disability justice so i just want to root this conversation in yes uh my statement four months ago was chaotic yes i'm a new member but i also was playing into a moment of do i want to say something because it's meaningful or do i want to play political calculus when everybody could see the writing on the wall that genocide was about to happen and i did wait for three days i did try to speak to people that i trust within caucus about what to do and this this statement that I put up calling for a ceasefire, I think four months later shows that if everybody had called for what I was calling for four months ago across the province across the country, maybe maybe we could have done something, maybe less people would have died. but I'm sitting here yeah. being asked the question would i be would I have done something differently on the heels of over thirty thousand people being massacred right and so my my answer to that truthfully is. The thing I regret the most is the amount of airtime that my decision to put up a statement took. Um, it took away some Palestinian voices that should have been centered. Media was coming to me in droves rather than trying to center the actual conflict, to talk about me painting a post about something that was important, about something that people in my writing yeah, were hearing yeah, me over and over and over again about, with family under the rubble, like people who I know. Uh, and so I, I just want to say all that to say, I, I don't think I would have done that differently. I think it was a matter of um, not willing to wait for the right number of people to die before saying something. I,
0: I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think, and you know this perception was there. Some people saw your social media posts in the aftermath of October 7th, and they read it as celebrating what happened on October 7th. And that's how they read it. And I, and and you understand that that's how they read it.
5: I can, listen, I'm I'm one of the youngest people to be elected. In the province, I'm the, one of the few Muslims to be elected there. I sat through listening mm-hmm. to eight hours of debate, likening me to terrorist sympathizers, on the heels of people being genocided. And I think there's a lot of anti-black rhetoric and Islamophobic rhetoric, even in the framing of you know me being celebratory because I went to a march or me being celebratory because I tried to get people uh to, to slow down and say, look, there's context here when we're talking about the region. Not only that, everybody knows over the course of the election, Brian Millie and people like that media were relentless sure, in harassing sure. me on my stance on Palestine. It wasn't new and the fact that this was being called celebratory on the heels of what was about to happen, on the heels of the Rafa border being closed, on the heels of people being without food and water. I think it's right. ridiculous and has but, something to do with me being Muslim and me being black in those nah, places.
0: See, Sarah, if I, if I was managing you and I said, Sarah, people care what you think. You got a lot of influence. And, and it's, again, it's really important what you advocate for. And I want you to have that power when you advocate. But if I, if I was your advisor, and this is me saying this, I would say, I'm worried some of what you'll have up here will be misinterpreted and then we'd have that conversation and that wouldn't be that wouldn't be anti-black, that wouldn't be anti-muslim. I'm just trying to I know how politics works. I know the benefits of it. I know the flaws of it, and you certainly do now too, but that would be me advising you to say to say, let's hold off on this, let's frame it a different way. But that's I think
5: even in that conversation, media is always, Hesitant to read what I actually put up. Like mm-hmm. we can talk about the actual statement. It called for a ceasefire. It called it, it. It called for politicians yeah. to question the use of settler colonialism in these conversations. And it called for Palestinian rights to be centered in a time where every other elected official in the country was calling for Israel's right to defend itself. And look what happened. So I under. I respect your political advice and and i did yeah. talk to people within the caucus too and people know my stance and it's it's just a matter of like look at the end of the day if everybody had gotten on the same stage on the ceasefire things would look very 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 different today
0: Here, here's how i read you i want to reset for our audience we're talking to sarah jama independent mpp for hamilton center and i'm hoping you had extra time because i do i want to let you go there but i do want to get to a couple other questions and i want to get to the important motions um you table we would both feel pretty bad mm-hmm. if we didn't get there but I, I think about you like this. Uh, I, I understand if someone said the controversial MPP, you kind of roll your eyes and you're like, "I'm a person like everybody else. I, we don't have to agree on 20 things out of 20 to see eye or uh, to see eye to eye on 15 or 16 of them." But I often mm-hmm. look at you, Sarah, and I think, would you be better served because of your independence, because of your um, of your your the streak that you have to say things that maybe others won't. Was party politics the best call? I could see you as a city councilor. I could see you as a mayor of a town. And because that way you're you only holding to the, the people and the public. Did you have to do things you didn't want to do in a party system? And did that cramp your style, if you will? And I could see, again, I could see other people understanding why you went too far. And I see you saying, hey, this is who I am. I see both sides.
5: There's, there's no... I don't think it's a matter of just being able to do whatever I want. And I think even that framing has been constantly infantilizing. There have been times in the past where I've been told to delete tweets and I did it. I was asked to stay away from the provincial convention in my riding and I did it. I was asked to stay away from the such debate and I did that. Like, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty. And I, I do think provincially is where I want to be provincial politics. And I do hope that there's a pathway to re-entry into the party someday. Like, these are not decisions that I made, nor were they made uh, with consensus, I think, or real conversation. I think, provincially, I care about healthcare, education. I care about ODSP. I'm going to be tabling two motions, and I'm actually heading to a press conference with ODSP Action Coalition right now to talk about that good work. I'm meant to be here provincially, and just because... Like, I come from a generation where sometimes we don't always do the political calculus in the same way of centering white voices, of centering the comfortable voices. It doesn't mean that I'm wrong and I don't belong in these spaces. And again, I want to reiterate, I had one of the most successful membership drives on the heels of uh, the nomination that has happened in this province in a couple of weeks. There are people across Hamilton Center but across this province who agree with me and who are looking for a political home, oh. and I want to bring that energy back into these spaces, and I will continue to do so.
0: you are with uh, independent uh, MPP Sarah Jamoff. She represents Hamilton Center, a former member of the NDP. So last thing I got before we get to the motion, Sarah, and I appreciate you hanging on. I want to know what you think goes too far during a protest i'm all for protesting i'm all for understanding these issues and and i think we've all had our moments where we've gotten it right and we've had our moments we've where we've gotten it wrong but i bring it up sarah because i've seen things um that i don't like to see i've seen i've heard from parents saying you know my 19 year old works at the eaton center and she was petrified by a protest or old people being yelled at going at, to olivia chow's skating party and i know what we'd agree on about what's happening that's atrocious and awful in the Middle East. But, but I'd say this, if someone, let's say someone's struggling to make ends meet with grocery prices and they can't put food on the table, I wouldn't scream at them that 2 billion people on the planet are starving. Like both things can be true. How do we get to a better place? How do we separate those two? We have to listen to each other. And I want to know what you think goes too far.
5: Yeah, I do hear you. Like, You're asking this question on the heels of the prime minister of this country getting angry or, or, you know, giving condolences to a hospital that was protested by Spider-Man who was holding a Palestinian flag. Like, people are showing up in droves to do what they can with the power that they have, the little power that they have, which is to march in the streets Mm -hmm. to draw attention to their people, like literally their family members being under the rubble or being missing or being killed. And the place that all the Palestinians have been told to go for safety, Rafa is now being attacked. This, We're watching yeah. ethnic cleansing Lots. So if people can do all they can, which is just take the streets to peacefully protest, they've been to many of these protests, they're all peaceful. Like They should be able to do that. But the framing by politicians, like the prime minister who got angry about this Spider-Man person climbing the Mount Sinai hospital, and I was there. Just, I mean, nobody was protesting the hospital. It's simply on a route. Like I think politicians need to take care to understand that we have a lot of power when we're talking about these subjects, and so when we weigh in, it can't be from the place of pearl clutching or self-centering. Like, center Palestinian voices always. And I will say, I got so many death threats. I got so many death threats by people being so angry. I got rape threats. I got emails. You don't see me posting about it online. I went to hiding. I took care of myself. And I'm I'm, I'm trying really, really hard to just center the conflict uh, and not... Center myself and my own safety. It is important to talk about, but I think we're often when it comes to people of color, we center respectability and say, you need to be doing things the right way. They're being told they can't take the streets, they're being told they can't, like, what can people do here? I think there's been a lot of,
0: but I think there's been a lot of leeway given the protests. I, I think that there has, like I, I've seen it in Toronto. I don't know what it's been like in no, Hamilton. I've, Honestly, seen,
5: I've, I've seen every single I've seen every single police force come up and say Israel has the right to defend itself and say that, basically insinuate that Palestinians who are peacefully protesting are a threat. I've seen these protests likened to uh, celebration and Hamas supporting, which isn't true as well. People are grieving and people yeah. are doing what they can to call attention back home and the media has been very dangerous in the framing of this, these peaceful protests and and I'm not here for
0: it I think the- yeah, I think the media we all don't work in the same building I, I I've seen it in some media, and i I will tell you I've done my best to to look at at all sides of this issue, and there aren't just two sides there isn't one side and the other because this has you know the middle East Sarah. it's got a ton of complexities to it. I want to get to your motions because we got about three so minutes does left Europe.
5: so does Canada of course like-
0: yes that's life it's complex. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> Tell me about what you're uh, what you're putting on the floor of Queen's Park today. And again, I think it's important. We need what someone like you does. We absolutely do. So what are you putting on the floor today?
5: Thank you. And I'm recognizing that I only, I just want to clarify for everybody listening, I only came on to do this interview because I wanted to talk about these motions and the work that I'm doing forward. It is not my intention to use media as an HR tool as it's been used so okay. far. And I don't like talking about these things. I think we should just move on and I wanna do good work. So with that being said, I'm very excited to be collaborating with ODSP Action Coalition. I had them draft with me two motions. One is to tie the housing benefit of ODSP and OW to the average rent in the area that you live in, because it's not enough to say we should just arbitrarily increase social assistance. Like it needs to be tied to market rent or people will still be evicted who are living on ODSP, which is happening in my city. Um, Hamilton Center is the poorest riding in the province um and and we need supports and so the second motion that we're tabling today as well is has to do with making sure that you don't get clawbacks if you're someone on ODSP just because you got married which is the case you used to to lose about like half your income and so many people 90 percent of people on ODSP are not like are single and that's part of it right people can't build meaningful intimate personal lives because of these policies and so i'm just looking to work with ODSP Action Coalition and other groups to to really address the root issues with social assistance programs in Ontario. Um, I also released a strategic plan um, where I'm going to be focusing on air quality in my riding. We have some of the worst air quality issues in all of Hamilton. Um, and, And other issues. I'll be collaborating with organizations that will directly work with me to write motions and table
0: them. You're talking about moving forward. So how do we get there in Queens Park? I disagree with the censure uh, motion, and I said so the next morning. It should be pointed out that some of your friends in the NDP caucus strongly disagree. They all voted against it. So how do we get your voice as prominent as every other single MPP, Sarah? Uh, and I got that's the last question I got time for, but tell me what you're hoping for
5: look, we're in a majority government where uh, the Ford government doesn't really tend to listen to anybody except for themselves anyway. So I'm not too sad that, uh, sure, he censured me, they censured me, it's fine, I'm fighting it in court, and I will continue to fight that in court, and I'm very hopeful of that process. In the meantime, I'm gonna use every single mechanism in the Legislative Assembly to still be present and active, like tabling motions, like talking to allies in that space, to to work with me, to to move and to debate motions if I can't do that myself. But I'll also be very active in committee. I'm able to speak in committee, uh, and that's where you get into the nitty-gritty of policy work anyway. Um, I can speak, and I can vote in committee, and I'll be doing that. And I can still vote in the House on issues that are important to people in my riding. The Centre was a mechanism to make an example of me that people shouldn't be weighing in on important issues. And I don't hide, and I'm not afraid, and I'm going back on February 20th.
0: Well, I appreciate it. And by the way, we need, you know, uh, again, we should be teaching all our kids in school how to take uh, courses on talking to people that you agree with on some things and disagree on others. We've lost the plot in our society on that. So we got to go to places. We got to ask each other tough questions and and keep it as balanced as we can be. And I appreciate you doing that on our show today. I really do.
5: Thank you so much, Greg. I appreciate it, too. First radio interview
0: on this. All right. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Thank you. I'm happy to be your first. Sarah, th- Sarah Jamma. thanks very much. And I wish you the best.
5: Bye. Thank you.
0: There's Sarah Jum joining us on Toronto Today. She's an independent MPP for Hamilton Center.